All right. So what are we going to do for episode number two then? Hmm. I was only... Number two pencils. Eh? Eh? No. Wait a minute. That's a terrible idea. No, that's a wonderful idea. Dude, I was joking. I think it was still a good idea. Oh my God, that's genius. Okay, but wait, n- entire episode on just number two pencils? Like, yes! No, like, no. Okay, I can maybe see an episode on like the history of writing instruments oh, or something like that. Well, but maybe, maybe an episode on pencils, but like, no, not writing. I mean, come on. I mean, okay, okay. okay, okay, hold on. What if we did an episode on things that were pointy? I guess that is the best part about a number two pencil is that it's right. pointy. It's yeah. not the worst idea we've had. Okay. So we and it's kind of random. Do we want to just make it like a like a wheel of history episode? Does that work? I think that could work. Huh, that's oddly timed. Oh, it's the wheel. Well, I did text it earlier. Huh. It can text? Yeah. Okay. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Sarah Ashley. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am still sick. I mean, excuse me, I'm Eric Brickmont. Eric? I mean, Coldmont. I mean, Brickmont. 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 I'm Eric Brickmont. Air sick, sickmont. Air <laughs> sick, sickmont. <laughs> Here, talking to you right now. I, you know, there's, there's a reason why there's a recommended dosage on NyQuil, Eric. You should really listen to that or, or really read <laughs> The label before it's, you it's, do that. It's like stop signs in parking lots. They're just suggestions. Uh-huh. All right, then. You can tell where Eric's from. California. <laughs> <laughs> hey, those are not real stop signs. Real stop signs have a sticker on the back of them. I'm just saying. Uh, okay. Anyway. Right. So. Of course, um, Eric's also says, it said spot. It wasn't a stop sign. It was a spot <laughs> sign. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's just mean. Don't make fun of his dyslexia. I mean, why I'm not? Sorry. You make fun of everything else about me. I'm Let's sorry. I mean, his listexia. <laughs> listexia. Yeah, it's the real reason I'm, I'm agnostic. I just can't spell God properly. Right. So. You keep right. spelling dog, bring, bring dog, dog, over and over again. Bring the dog. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, topic tonight. I mean, you actually heard how we came up with this weird topic. It was, it was an improvised verbatim. recreation. But yeah. Yes. Yeah. But almost verbatim. I mean, that was pretty close to the actual yeah. conversation. Yeah. This is was. what happens when we record really late. Yeah. And, and then we just... plan for the next few episodes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that we have had no alcohol nor yep. any other substances that could modify our thinking. <laughs> you we speak are... for yourself. I'm flying pretty high right now. <laughs> Yes, of course, Eric is on cold medicine, yeah. but I'm yeah. just saying that this came to us while we were all clean and sober. Yeah, oh, that's true. Saying. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, and so did the wheel, who happens <laughs> to be here, the wheel of pointy objects. <laughs> oh, man, that's terrifying tonight. It, yeah. is, it is terrifying. So, Eric. Please don't anyone get the kitchen knife. That's just kind of like, that's the, like a, that's a slash movie waiting to happen. It looks, it looks nasty. So, Eric. Um, considering that you're on so much medication, I'm assuming you're probably a little numb. So why don't you start first? Yeah. All right. Let's do this. And God, oh, hypodermic needles suck. <laughs> Here's hoping it was clean. <sighs> yeah, really. Well, I'm on antibiotics right now for this. Oh, well, that's good. So I think we'll that's be all right. Good. And ooh, nails. Nails. 
Well, you know, it's funny because I, I do know a little bit about nails. Nails are actually quite fascinating. And I'll tell you, it doesn't seem like it, but we owe so much of, you know, our modern architecture and design to the fact that we can keep things standing up and standing up for a long time and yeah. secured. And, and when the nail was brought into the modern world, it made modern construction possible. So, you know, it's kind of important. Would you say that they nailed it? Oh, they, they definitely hit it on the head. I... <laughs> it also led us to one of the world's most pervasive religions. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah, exactly. We will talk about that. Um, but let's go back further than that, further back into ancient history, to a place that I know quite well, New Jersey. No, sorry. <laughs> I, I had to throw you for a loop. Uh, ancient Egypt, obviously, we're talking about ancient Egypt. Jesus. Um, Which is right next to New Jersey, <laughs> right. honestly. I mean, it's like practically the same thing. Yeah. It, it's right off of the coast of Borat. I mean... You just take the bridge. I yeah. mean, you just take the bridge. Like, you take a left at the African Turnpike, and yeah. then, you know... Like, seriously, there's, like, a lot of cemeteries, a lot of gold. Yeah. It parallels. Endless. Yeah. <laughs> Endless. Tan. Um, very tan. <laughs> <laughs> Shores. Clearly <laughs> lots of parallels there, too. <laughs> so ancient nails were very different than their modern counterparts these days. In fact, originally the concept was that of a peg. So wooden pegs were used to uh, shore up joints and make them nice and strong. Uh, and while not technically a nail, the ancient Egyptians did use metal nails, although quite sparingly. So there haven't been a whole lot of examples that have survived the test of time. Uh, but the ones that they have found were rot, rot nails or forged nails uh, made by hand and were made out of the uh, soft but still secure material that they had available to them, which was bronze. Right. And of course, I am imagining they didn't use metal nails much because it's just the expense of creating bronze. Yeah, exactly. Bronze was not terribly practical as a widespread uh, uh, you know, tool within construction, right? It just okay. didn't make sense. Uh, the wooden peg prevailed in you know funerary architecture, which is uh, where a lot of that survives. And obviously, they were using stone uh, for large constructions like temples and mud brick for smaller, more intended to be temporary structures like people's homes and you know cities and what have you. Right. So there wasn't a whole lot of need for them in terms of large general construction, but in the small stuff, uh, in the in the fine crafted uh, funerary items, more often than not, uh, you do find occasionally some bronze nails which is kind of cool hmm. uh where nails start to kind of pick up in popularity uh it, it is a bit after that and we do have some examples that come to us um from other places within the ancient world uh but more often than not you're you're dealing with uh, a much later time in history uh again focusing on on forged nails but um obviously the romans use them extensively uh, and these nails were more often than not made out of, uh, iron. They were forged on a fire in a blacksmith shop. They were perhaps one of the most valuable items and commodities that were exchanged in, uh, the late ancient world into, you know, uh, much later into Europe, into medieval ages and what, and medieval times and what have you. Uh, but you know, by, you know, they make their appearance in written literature in the Bible, of course. Not surprising, considering they were used so widely by the Romans. Uh, in a uh, in a story known as the Judges of Jail, uh, in which uh, the wife of an herber actually drives a nail uh, into the temple of a sleeping uh, Canaanite commander, uh, obviously in, in, in killing him. Um, King David 
provisioned many iron nails for the Temple of Solomon uh, and its construction. And then, of course, we have, you know, that kind of big event, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Yes, indeed. Uh, and, and, you know, it is interesting to note that crucifixion, they actually think nails were not as commonly used. They would have more or less reserved them for people they really wanted to make a big statement for. And that's most, exactly what it was. Yeah. yeah, most people who were crucified were tied very securely to the cross because the whole point of crucifixion is to cause suffocation over a very long and right. arduous period of time. Yeah. And that is, there are a lot of scholars that support that that is how Jesus was actually done. The, the nails were just insult to injury. Yeah, um, and they were intentionally placed in areas of the body which were meant to not sure up the body to the cross, but actually just to miss major arteries and, and cause terrible pain. Right. There are basically two theories. The theory is that he was tied to the cross like everybody else, and then they used the nails, um, again, like I said. Or the other option was that he was um, that he was actually crucified, but the nails didn't go through his hands. They went through his wrists so they could actually hold him up on the cross. Yeah, even still, very carefully placed so as not to cause the victim to bleed out. That was, right. that was not the point right. of crucifixion. So these hand-wrought or forged nails, um, the the process to make them uh, was pretty simple. You know, you heated up a, a iron rod uh, and, and tapered the end, uh, and then you, you essentially knocked off these various little sections as you went along the way until you had what you wanted, desired, and then you kind of forged it on the, on the forge with the hammer until the, you got to your desired shape. And that's how they did it for a really long time. In fact, hand-wrought nails continued up until about the 19th century. So they were, they were going forever. Uh, eventually, they, they changed this process a little bit into the cut nail. So the cut nail uh, is essentially very similar in this process, uh, but it simplifies things by having these little nail rods all kind of lined up. And you used a, a slitting mill, which was introduced in the 1590s in England, uh, to quickly uh, cut them out into, into the desired shape. And that process itself didn't really pick up in popularity uh, until a couple hundred years later. Uh, then you found its way to the United States and England, uh, where these slitting mills uh, kind of advanced in their, in their technology. Um, you'll find that if it wasn't for how quickly and easily they, they could be produced... Um, that the ballooning framing process, as opposed to using timber framing to joint, you know, bring wooden joints together to form, you know, things like structures like houses and what have you, uh, would have been a much more difficult process. and uh, just wouldn't have been feasible or, or possible with the materials available at the time. Uh, those nails do tend to be uh, a little less reliable in their construction. They're a little bit weaker, uh, not as weak as wire nails, um, but still not as uh, sturdy, and you couldn't make them as long as you know these larger handcrafted ones. But this was a big business; like this was a big industry. In fact, nails uh, and their production uh, were used as a form of barter and currency for hundreds of years, particularly in the fledgling American colonies. Really? Yeah, absolutely. So huh. you know, nail making was almost exclusively a European trade, uh, and it was being monopolized by the the english and they were like many other items that were being brought into the american colonies being heavily taxed upon sure uh, and so many households and families in the early colonial era um, took up this as a pastime so you know in those cold winter nights or times when uh, the family had finished its other work and had nothing to do they got to 
making some nails. Interesting. I would have thought just like the village or the local blacksmith would have taken on. Upon oh, and they nails. did. And that was one of their number one contracts. I mean, blacksmiths for ages were producing nails far more than anything else that was coming out of their forges. But families at home who had the resources available to, to them could do this as well, uh, including Thomas Jefferson, who was actually uh, very well known for producing nails uh, and took great deal of pride in it, said that it was a, a process that could be done by any person, uh, whether you were of you know rich gentry or if you were a common peasant, there was something you all shared in common, and that was your desire to, to make nails. Uh, there are some suggestions that also around this time, if you had an abandoned home that you were no longer living in, maybe it was damaged due to some sort of environmental cause or fire or whatever, right? Uh, you would actually go and burn down the structure not just to clear the land and make room for you know whatever it was to be built next, but instead to save the nails from the building's construction. Uh, they were considered to be that valuable. Huh. So nails, again, kind of go through a, an interesting transformation uh, when the wire nail uh, is used. And as it implies, the you know wire is used to form in the, in the, in the shape of coils, uh, the nails that we're most common and, and familiar with today. Um, this process began uh, again in Europe uh, and carried over uh, into the United States just by by the fact that you know they, by competition essentially they needed to be able to produce nails to compete with having to import them over. Um, but even still, uh, these uh, the cut nail industry pretty much starts to de decline in the late 1890s, uh, particularly in the United States. Um, and by 1913, 30 or sorry, ninety percent of all nails manufactured were now in the in the wire form. Right. Um, that other ten percent were for the larger, sturdier, bigger nails. Um, the smaller nails that we're familiar with today uh, are all wire nails, and they range in a variety of different um, sizes. Um, the uh, the term uh, penny size is used to explain the differences between different size nails. Uh, this is believed to be a holdover from the English uh, a penny, or sorry, the English uh, nail manufacturing process, where uh, batches of pen, uh, nails were bought for, you know, pennies, uh, and so on. And however, you know, many pennies you paid, you paid for either larger amounts of nails or larger nails themselves. Huh. And uh, there are a whole bunch of different kinds of nails out there. Uh, everything from box nails, casting nails, uh, drywall nails forged and point nails, um, ring shank sinkers and spirals. I mean, the names go on and on and they're used for all sorts of different purposes. Uh, it's, it's kind of fun to, uh, to actually see how many different types of nails there actually are. Yeah. Uh, who knew nails could be so interesting. Yeah, indeed. Well, thank you, Eric, for sharing. Thank you. Would you say I nailed it? You nailed it. All right. Well, I think I will go ahead and take a turn on the wheel. Just, just be careful, yeah. Okay, and here we go. Um, I know. Hi. All right, knitting needles. Interesting. Well, um, I, you know, I. Fun fact: I've I have done a bit of knitting in my lifetime. Um, 
it's not for me. <laughs> I've I've tried it for a little bit and then I get bored. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I do actually do appreciate a lot of the knit scarves and and hats and other things that people have given me in my life. So this is actually a pretty interesting topic. Um, you know, the interesting thing actually with knitting is that really nobody knows um, how old it is as a as a craft. Um, the oldest item that they found that actually was knitted that they know for sure was knitted was um like a sock that was found in where eric new jersey where else oh sorry ancient egypt there we go <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it was actually found in egypt um and it's uh, believed to have been from about um 11th century ce so you know again that was just the first one that they found that they know for sure was knitted it's kind of hard to say, though, because a lot of the fabrics that people used to knit with, um, you know, fall apart, actually, fairly quickly. They, they eventually disintegrate and you just don't find them anymore. Yeah. Um, but, you know, historians kind of posit that knitting is actually still a relatively recent invention because there aren't really any ancient legends of people knitting in the way that there are a lot of ancient legends of uh, gods and goddesses spinning or weaving um and that kind of legend they're just they don't really have knitting in there per se um and also the you know an other interesting thing is that knitting needles old ancient knitting needles are kind of hard to distinguish from other objects such as like skewers and hair picks and spindles or even just sharpened sticks because there's so many purposes for a long pointy object right yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it's kind of hard to say, but um, the ones that they do know for sure were knitting needles um, were the earliest ones were most commonly metal. Um, and they believe that knitting um, basically evolved kind of in the Middle East and traveled out towards Spain during the Crusades. Hmm. Um, in fact, the term to knit wasn't actually even <clears throat> added to the English language until the 1400s. Wow. And it's um, a derivative from um, an older term of, of not. I'm what? sorry. I just have this mental image of these soldiers coming back from the crusade, you know, and they're all traveling back on horseback. And they're or, all wearing scarves. Yeah, well, no, they're all knitting as they go. And you're oh, like, right. wow, <laughs> this time goes by so much faster. Well, funny you should say that because actually knitting was predominantly a, a male endeavor. Huh. Um, the, the earliest knitting businesses were male-dominated, and the earliest guilds were started by men. The knitting guild. The knitting guild. And <laughs> interesting. <laughs> what? It's <laughs> another mental image. A bunch of men sitting around a table all knitting in the knitting guild. Oh, women will never be allowed to do this. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, and it's uh, and actually the uh, the metal... The metal knitting needles that they have found, the ancient ones, are kind of bent with a curve because um, they were these things called knitting sheaths. And they sound just like a, like a knife sheath. Like you wow. would wear it on your side and just imagine like in between, you know, going from one field to another or carrying this thing and that thing and toiling about in between. You pull out your knitting needles out of your sheath and you keep on knitting because you need, still need that sweater for later. <laughs> and then you go back and you just... And like, oh, I got to do more work with my hands. You put it back in the sheath and you go about your business. I have a question. Yes. Do you ever think there was a dispute that was settled by a knit-off? Uh, because men are naturally competitive. Well, let's let admit it. Can you so, imagine them unsheathing it and like, okay, he who can knit the first sweater. <laughs> I hope so. It took, it took the three winner. weeks 
to complete. Um, <laughs> no sleep, no eating. And of course, they had to strike their opponent first with a with a nicely knit uh, glove. Yeah, right. Of course. With a little mitten. <laughs> well, and you guys, you know, obviously the types of sweaters and things that we're thinking of are probably like what woolen type sweaters. Yeah. Sure. Um, not actually the most common thing to be knitted. Actually, the mm. most common thing to be knitted, especially then, was silk and and um, soft cottons, because sure. these were and people were making silk stockings for royalty and everything like that. They were knitting them themselves. Um, wool was really predominantly. You saw that in Scotland and Ireland. Um, because it's cold yeah. and also there are natural oils in wool that help protect fishermen from you know the harshness of the sea well wool was also particularly important because even after it gets wet it still helps to retain your your body heat and keep you warm whereas many other fabrics will cool you down mm -hmm. wool has the opposite effect. absolutely yeah. absolutely um and so pervasively, it was mostly metal um, in Europe, you know, metal knitting needles until about um, the 1800s when they started using more boxwood, ivory, tortoiseshell, even whalebone. Um, and then aluminum, you know, was kind of replacing like steel needles, generally speaking. And then about, you know, the mid um, 1900s is when we start getting plastic knitting needles, which is used fairly commonly. However, um, a lot of times for... Uh, larger diameter needles you'll use wood still hmm. um which is you know very interesting and then um there are three basic types of knitting needles there's the pin style which you know just looks kind of like a long nail just really thin with like a little flat edge on the on the back um then there's the double-sided which has two pointy ends and those are used to do um like more circular type things so like socks tops of hats that kind of thing and then it was in the 1900s when they actually created the circular knitting needle, which effectively looks like a big loop with two knitting needles on either end. Right. Um, Thus, the infinity scarf was born. <laughs> <laughs> and the interesting thing with that is that it wasn't even actually that popular at first because the seam from the, the wire to the actual needle part, yarn kept getting hooked on it. So it was just really obnoxious to use. Until um, they finally were able to, to get it to smooth it out and then it became a much easier process for people to use. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's actually, uh, knitting actually is kind of fascinating. Um, they just have a really, it has a really interesting history. I mean, one part of it that I, aspect I really like about it is, you know, during the French Revolution and when they were, you know, chopping everybody's heads off, there was a legit group of women who would sit on the front lines, kind of like in the bandstands of, of the guillotine in the town square, and knit while watching rich people die. Like, that was that was their thing. And they would, like, they were, like, expected to be there at every single beheading. They were allowed to, you know, yell and curse and do whatever. And as they were doing it, they were just knitting. Yeah. Right along. Well, huh. I, you know, I think just thinking about the idea of knitting... And how it's revolutionized clothing. We're all wearing something that's knit right now. Because we don't think about t-shirts, but t-shirts are made from knit cotton. Sure. Of course, right. it's done through a machining process yes. now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, that's what gives a shirt its elasticity mm -hmm. yeah. to it versus a woven cotton, which would be like more like a dress shirt. You right, know? absolutely. And and the first knitting machine was actually invented in, in 1589. Um Obviously, they've become much more mechanical and much more refined, but that was sure. really when the first one um, came about. And actually, Qu Queen Victoria herself was a prolific knitter. 
Um, which I, I <laughs> Who know. Knew? Who knew? Who'd have thunk? Um, but it was... Your Majesty, it is time for your knitting. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, thank you. Well, because, I mean... Because... These socks are for Albert. <laughs> well, if you think about it, because it became so mechanized after the invention of the knitting machine, it wasn't necessarily a thing to belabor over. It became a thing that was more leisurely. And that's really what the practice is more so now. Nobody really does it. I mean, some people might, but most people, you know, that we interact with on a daily basis do not necessarily need to knit for their actual, you know, sustainable clothes or whatever. Like they do it because they want a cool hat. Sure. Um, And good for them because knitting burns 55 calories per 30 minutes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Fun freaking fact right there. (laughs) <laughs> and um also a really really sad fact because i you know me i like to add things on sad depressing notes yeah la- um, like last episode yeah <laughs> sorry um this one's not any better it might be worse um another okay. really unfortunately popular use of knitting needles especially in the 1950s was for women to actually perform self-abortions it was actually extremely common for women to um, go to the hospital for injuries or um, for even some women to die because they were trying to um, take care of that themselves and um, not really understanding that, you know, your interior with your, you know, to get up through your cervix and into your uterus, it's actually more of a curve. Yeah. And they're going straight up and actually causing internal bleeding. And that was really, really unfortunate. And sepsis and then eventually death. Mm-hmm. So yep, that's well, your Ashley, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> right. I find these really interesting. These are really <laughs> interesting things. They're sure interesting. All right. But yeah, remember Queen Victoria likes to knit. Oh, yeah. That was fun. Let's, yeah. let's focus on yes, that. Yes, those socks were for Albert. Brian's um. turn. <laughs> well, speaking of needles. Ha! Oh, why did I have to spin from the side that had a hacksaw on it? You should oh. not have worn white today. Uh. <laughs> you had your choice, Brian. I did. The Space Needle. How lovely. Um, That is a big, big pointy object, isn't it? It's a big pointy object. Okay. Uh, So first of all, let's talk about (laughs) space for a moment. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about space, Space. shall we? And then let's talk about needles. Now let's put the two together. Oh, let's talk about space right now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Harry Carey. No, uh, the Space Needle was, uh, for a time, the tallest structure west of the Mississippi River. And uh, it up until up until the Safeco Plaza building. <laughs> up, was, until <laughs> <laughs> up until it wasn't. Up until it wasn't. Up until the Safeco Plaza building surpassed it. It was built in 1961 in preparation for the Seattle World's Fair. Why Big do they deal. do World's Fairs anymore? The last one was 1992, I think, in Barcelona, if I'm not mistaken. Or no, that was the Olympics. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I think it was London, wasn't it? Wasn't London the last World's Fair? I don't no. know. Where the eye was built? I, have I don't no, think so. I have no idea. It? I just really want to know why there aren't any more World's Fairs. Yeah. Let's we'll do an episode on that. Because the future cars of tomorrow are today. Well, rightfully so. I mean, lots of things have come out of it. For Disneyland attractions, for example, have come out of World's Fairs. Um, but in this particular one, the theme for the World's Fair in 1962 uh, was Century 21. So obviously I had this whole futuristic element to it. But not only that, what 
whenever you have a World's Fair in a in a city, like it leaves permanent, you know, reminders to it. This is a very permanent reminder because it's the landmark of Seattle, Washington. Sure, yeah. I mean, you even look at pictures of it and they put the Space Needle in the front, even if it doesn't actually go there in the cityscape. It's just, it's there because they wanted to have it front and center so you know, bam, Seattle. Imagine how boring the introduction of Frasier would be if it wasn't for that. <laughs> right. Exactly. It has to do the little squiggly thing, right? Exactly. Where it makes a needle. So, um, and it, it is primarily, it does two things. First off, it's an observation tower. So you can take an elevator up to top. It's not cheap. It's like 25 bucks to ride the elevator Seriously? up. Seriously? Yeah, it is. But That's it's terrible. So, but it's beautiful Beautiful view. It's not as tall as you might think, actually. Per person? I don't think, I don't remember being that. Because they ain't bringing the kids if it's per yeah, person. It's per person. That, that would, like... Bankrupt. It's okay. There's a lot of there's like a carousel and some fun stuff down at the bottom. All right, we'll, we'll go. Yeah, Seattle City Center is actually really fun. There's some cool museums. And well, stuff. I'm getting to that. Okay, sorry. I'm getting to that. <laughs> you stole his thunder, which is accompanied by the lightning. I didn't even which know but... the space needle. <laughs> I, was, I was just in Seattle recently. We talked about this right a couple a uh, few weeks ago. First off, you know, your impression of the of the needle. It doesn't look as tall as it actually is. Uh, it's a, but it is a 605 foot tall structure. It's pretty so, tall. Yeah, it is pretty tall. It's really when you go up the elevator that it starts to kind of, you start to notice it. Uh, the other thing I think is most important feature to it is the rotating restaurant that's the, at the top. That sounds like a bad idea. No, no. So here's the thing. It rotates fast enough so that you can see it, but slow enough where it doesn't obstruct anything from falling over or for you to get motion sickness. Yeah, you don't feel it at all. Okay. You only feel it when you go from like the stationary part to the spinny part. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, okay. When you're in the center, obviously, right? Yeah. Correct. So um, to be fair, so Edward E. Carlson, who was the chairman of the World's Fair for Seattle, uh, commissioned the the tower. And uh, it was inspired by the Stuttgart Tower in Germany. Yeah. Yeah. The the actual architect, though, uh, was John Graham. And he had recently built or designed a mall in Seattle and gotten some acclaim for that. So that's why they picked him for it. Uh, he also had done some work, I believe, in uh, Honolulu as well for uh, a shopping center there. It, but the thing is that there was actually no place for them to put the tower. So when they built the land for the World's Fair, uh, they had to create the spot for it there. And basically, it only took about a year or so to build. It actually came together pretty quickly as far as buildings are concerned. Uh, what I think is really fascinating, though, is that the... It obviously is the center of Seattle Center, and Seattle Center is the name of it now, but it was originally just the World's Fair. And there's a there's a beautiful park, there's a fountain, there is the uh, more recent addition is the Experimentation of Music Museum. Experiment, experimental Music Project is Thank what it's you. called, the EMP. EMP. It looks like a metal intestine. Uh, it's... When you look at it from the top down, it's supposed to represent a smashed up Jimi Hendrix guitar fascinating fact mm-hmm. yeah i spent a lot of time there my because I, I fly into seattle to go up and see my dad so i spent a lot of time there i love it there yeah never yeah. been <laughs> yeah it's really really cool it's also uh, it was a boon to the art scene too because there's a couple museums there there's the uh there's like eight professional theater companies who were that were all there in seattle center because of this event taking place and this the needle is just the biggest symbol of it basically is what i was trying to say it's like a beacon but do you guys also know what was part of the 1962 World's Fair? Uh, the Smurfs? 1962, I'm going to say corn dogs. They must have been around by then. Deep fried Twinkies. The monorail. 
Monorail. Monorail. Monorail. Yeah, that's what I was hoping. Right the monorail. 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 Yes, monorail. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the monorail. And it actually is a functioning monorail that takes you to, it's only about a mile long, but it takes you to the downtown shopping district. Oh. It gets uncomfortably close to buildings. And by the way, as far as World's Fair goes, this was the only World's Fair to actually be profitable. Like, it made back all of the money invested into it, and then some, and it was poured right back into the city. So yeah. Maybe know. that's why they don't have World's Fairs anymore. <laughs> You think? Yeah, <laughs> it was a racket. <laughs> um, I, I could, I'm going to keep it a little light for that reason, but I mean, it goes to say that aside from it being a, that, uh, the one other thing I want to add is that in 1999, it was uh, named as a landmark, so it won't ever be torn down either. And of course, uh, it lights up at night, and every New Year's they do a uh, fireworks show. I will also say, if you do want to go to the Sky City Restaurant, which is in the top of the of the spire. You can make a reservation, and in fact, they will take reservations up to 90 days in advance. But you can also walk in, too. It just You might have to wait a little longer. And it's also pricey, by the way, so plan on it, seriously. Uh, it's kind of cool. Like, it's just, it's trippy that it's spinning, but, you know. Yeah. It's also trippy to be eating in the middle of the Eiffel Tower, too, but people do it anyway. So, you know. They you sure do. Eric, back to you. Have you stopped bleeding yet? Yeah, I'm fine with that. Uh, here, hold on a second. I knew I brought my work glove for a reason. All right. And it doesn't work against a scimitar. Ah, Jesus. Mm. Oh, you're going to need stitches. It's okay, I'm going to need that's... new freaking fingers when I'm going to need. Yeah, you, well, you have four more on that hand. Oh, thanks. Brian. So there you go. That. Yeah. All right. Looks like we have settled on the scalpel. Oh. Fantastic. Mm. Yes. Or and as I like to call it, the doctor's shank. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> the uh, the scalpel. Um, the scalpel, let's let's think about it. There are three tools that mankind first invented. Uh, that that one of them falls into this category. Can you think of what the other might be? What? There's... With the scalpel? <laughs> well, a scalpel fits into one of the categories, but there are three big tools that mankind first made. What were they? The wheel and no, fire. No, fire, no, fire. The stylus. Mankind didn't make fire; they That's took advantage true. of fire. Uh, the thing that started fire. <laughs> so the hammer. Okay. Right, or in other words, a rock. Right. Sure. Okay. The hand axe. So also a rock, but hit with another rock and made with a large serrated edge for yeah, okay, like bludgeoning things to death. Uh, right. and cutting, My favorite you know, simple, cutting wood and what have you. Yep. And the knife. Oh. Which the kniff? Would, the kniff. Yes, as I, of course, would say. Um, <laughs> which would later, of course, become the fine surgical scalpel that we're familiar with today. But there are suggestions that some of the first attempts at using uh, a small, extremely sharp blade to perform uh, forms of surgery began uh, thousands of years ago, uh, perhaps as much as 8,000 years ago. Uh, and, and what? Uh, well, I mean, think of Mesoamerica. There were cultures that practiced surgery, but that was more like head surgery. That was even weirder. But I'm sure you're probably going to make a reference to New Jersey again. Absolutely. Yeah. No. Uh, well, essentially, in the Mesolithic period, there were times when they have found a few examples of human skulls that have had very deliberate, very uh, sharp puncture wounds that could only have been created uh, by a uh, a stone scalpel essentially right so and, and these are extremely sharp uh, you know we've talked a little bit up around 
uh, flint knapping before the the practice of making stone tools, and essentially the the um, the shards that are shot off are sometimes so sharp that they rival even modern razors today. I mean, you can wow. cut through extremely thick hide uh, using some of these. So it'd be a very simple process to puncture skin and then eventually into bone. Uh, there are other examples that come to us a little more, a little more recently, although not, not terribly recently, uh, from Turkey uh, at about 2100 BC, uh, which also show signs of uh, trepanning, right? So, you know, puncturing the skull to release pressure uh, off of the brain. Uh, almost certainly many of these early attempts at brain surgery actually involved, uh, resulted in, uh, you know, infection, which would lead to death. But nonetheless, you got to give them cred for trying. Uh, they do take on a little bit more of a sophisticated and more formed shape later on, right? So uh, small knives uh, like obsidian blades were used in ancient Egypt in the mummification process to perform very fine, uh, detailed uh, surgery, right? Something where you don't just want to hack away at the body. You just want to rip it open with a knife or an axe, right? You really want to do a very careful, uh, clean incision. Uh, and also uh, in India, uh, as far back as the 8th century uh, BCE, uh, with Sasruta, who was uh, and still is one of the, the greatest and oldest uh, writers of, of ancient uh, medical practices, in particular surgery, uh, from that time. So clearly, you know, there was a lot of knowledge around the practice of surgery. The tools would develop <clears throat> along with it as it continued to be uh, more and more sophisticated. Uh, but uh, Herodotus uh, gives very detailed early examples of knives that were designed specifically for surgery. So actual surgical tools, not just knives that are reused um, for that purpose. And he describes a blade uh, that has a broad cutting blade right with a single edge and then a sharp straight point which you if you imagine that looks just like a scalpel that you would imagine today mm -hmm. uh, so that was being produced as far back as you know well before herodotus clearly because he's making reference to it uh, and so the the idea of the shape of the blade had already been in existence for quite some time and not surprisingly the romans also really took advantage of it and uh, move the, the field of surgical medicine forward in a big way. Uh, it, they also gave us our word for the scalpel, uh, scapulus, uh, where clearly the, the name comes from. Celsus and Galen you know, were the, the forerunners of Roman surgery, and uh, as the Roman Empire spread, their practice spread along with it, and thus the, the knife or the, the scalpel spread as well. Uh, you'll find after the death of Galen, however, you go into a huge decline. So near the the late, um, you know, the... Late antiquity. Yeah, exactly. Near late antiquity, you find that the practice uh, and the fine art of using the scalpel dies out for a while and continues through the Dark Ages. In fact, it doesn't even really start to pick up uh, until about the 15th century. And then at that point, you have an actual move forward in, in the technology. Um, and we actually can thank Ambrose Perret, um, a, a French uh, who well started as a barber surgeon and then kind of progressed his way forward to a master surgeon in the in the court of Henry II, who starts innovating the tool uh, a bit further. And you'll find that some of his designs were really revolutionary and really sparked interest in refining the scalpel. Uh, furthermore, you ever heard of the term uh, barber surgeon? 
Uh, I hadn't actually, no. And I'm not talking about Sweeney Todd. Uh, I'm talking about the the fact that many barbers at the time were not just responsible for cutting hair, but instead were brought in to do mm-hmm. amputations mm-hmm. Uh, and other surgical procedures. Yeah, they uh, were they were primarily responsible for a lot of routine bloodletting and everything, yeah. Exactly, mm-hmm. because most physicians at the time or doctors thought surgery to be something beneath them, which is fascinating because if you consider one of the highest uh, paid and highest respected uh, areas of of you know, medicine, medicine today is that of a surgeon. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I just thought it was a fun little interesting parallel. Uh, You'll show what they knew. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So the production of, of cutlery, right? This was the skill needed to perf to, to perfect these small blades. And from that point forward, it was those individuals who were producing swords and knives and even dinnerware who are responsible for, for crafting these. And, you know, by the time of the 18th century, this was something that was a big, big business in England, France, Holland, Germany, all these very large, powerful, wealthy countries in Europe. And something that didn't really catch on in the United States uh, until the Civil War. So these scalpels were being produced primarily in Europe for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the Civil War demanded that scalpels be made at home. Well, yeah. Uh, just because of the sheer amount of amputations that are being uh, performed. Uh, so the government was contracting, um, you know, so many different you know firms and keeping them busy and, and having them produce uh, these scalpels. I mean, Perhaps- not even just not even just amputations, because, I mean, really, that would probably require more like a bone saw and that kind of thing. But um, at least for, you know, pulling out bullets sure. and and, you know, any kind of debris or anything like that, like that's an infection and all this other thing like things that they'd have to probably go through and drain and all that other stuff like but that's don't underestimate the, the use of the scalpel oh, and well, amputation sure. uh, many many small surgeries were performed before the big limb was cut yeah. off in order to to prevent you know bleeding that's true. out that's true uh you'll find that the next big uh jump forward comes from mr king gillette and of course his invention of the safety razor mm-hmm and this was a time of fine machine working and and very small um uh, you know, um, changes were able to be made at this point. With a 1910 patent um, produced by Dr. John B. Murphy, uh, you found that now you had uh, specialized handles for both these single and double-edged razor blades, uh, the double-edged scalpel known more by its name of the Lancet. Um, eventually, they would... F- you know, a few years later, be able to invent a scalpel that had a removable head. That's the kind that you you find most common mm-hmm. in a doctor's um, surgery now. Right, for um, sanitary purposes, of yep. course. And then, of course, uh, things like the X-Acto blade or, yep. or single-piece um, uh, cutters or, you know, little fine-piece craft, you know, arts and crafts kind of knives and, and utility knives and what have you were being produced hand-in-hand. Um, uh, so the scalpel has come a long way mm-hmm. from thousands and thousands of years ago, and it's, but it's had an been impressive around journey. for a long time. Yeah. Oh yeah, and it's been used in in a similar way for a long time as well. So it is pretty important. Definitely belongs on this list. Great. All right, it's my turn again. I don't want to. I would have never texted the damn thing if I, I knew it was coming in like. I this. mean, seriously. Just deep yeah. breaths. Deep breaths. Just wait. Wait. You gotta, you gotta wait. pump yourself up. Wait. Shoot, I forgot my chainmail glove. God. All right. Son of a wow. I'm cool. You sure? Huh? 
That looked really bad. It's okay. This the skin will eventually <gasps> grow back. Brian, tear off your shirt. I need to cut. I need to cut off the. the no, no, Brian, the Brian, no, 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 no. Put the shirt back on. Put the shirt back on. <laughs> okay. He's like a carpet. <laughs> a well-groomed carpet. <laughs> I'll give you that. Did you use a scalpel? <laughs> Safety razor. Oh, yeah. All right. The Swiss Army knife. Ooh. Oh my God. The the coveted thing of like I mean I know I wanted one super duper bad no, I just, when I was I, a kid. I always think of when I think of the Swiss Army knife. I always think of the famous Robin Williams bit where he's approaching, he's addressing his men and said, "Many of you have never opened up Chardonnay under fire before." <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, well, so it's actually really interesting. Um, you know, this this knife came from a very practical need, and that really was um, having a convenient, usable tool on the battlefield. Um, and it's it's just tremendously practical. And so the idea for the knives came about in about the 1880s when the Swiss military um, put a call out there saying that it needed to give soldiers a simple, portable tool um, that they could use for opening canned food um and also for dissembling their service rifle which was held together with screws so you need to have a screwdriver with it hmm. and so they kind of you know said hey let you know you know knife manufacturers everywhere help us with this thing you know we want something that we can issue to our soldiers and at the time switzerland didn't really have the production capabilities for that so they actually outsourced to um, a german company um, that made uh, something very similar um, to what they were looking for. Um, and they I think they did like some 15,000 or whatever. But then um, Carl Elsner came in and he said, mm, I can I can do that and I can do it better and I can do it at home. So let let me take it over. And so he had his own cutlery factory that he ran with his mother and they created what has now become the the Swiss Army knife that we know. He hmm. he added, you know, basically a little spring-loaded thing to it to make it easy to use. Um, he was able to craft it so he could pull out tools from both sides. And it actually was not until the second iteration that the corkscrew came in. Uh-huh. <laughs> Somebody realized the mistake on that one real right? quick. When again, they needed to, you know, have a bottle of wine on the So you say it was made at home then? Yeah, he... Like he, around his family? Yes. Kind of a, a Swiss family. Yes, a Swiss family like army, army knife. knife. <laughs> Shut yes. up. The last name was Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so anyway, so he made one that was better. And then, um, it, yeah, in 1896, he succeeded in attaching tools to both sides of the handle and using the spring mechanism. And so he was able to also put out twice as many as the German manufacturers were. So he t- completely took the business away from them, kept it at home. And then um, in 1897, he uh, added a smaller, a second smaller cutting blade. He added the corkscrew. He had wood fiber grips. Um, and pretty much the actual structure of the device has stayed the same since then. It's been around in its classic form for such a long time. Um, and the interesting part, too, is that, you know, Elsner had this cutlery company, but it didn't actually have a name. It was just his company that he ran with his mom. But when his mother passed away um, in 1909, he ended up kind of naming the company after her. And so it was Victoria. Hmm. And then in 1921, 
the firm began using some stainless steel and its knives. And so they took the French phrase for stainless steel and the shortened version of it, which was inox, and it became Victorinox, which is still the name to this day of that company. And it's run by his, like, grandson or something like that. That's a really, like, strong name. Victorinox? (laughs) Yeah. Is it Victorinox? Victorinox. Victorinox. I don't know how they pronounce it. It's a mouthful one way or another. It is. It's... You want to know what's a mouthful? Okay, so World War II. <laughs> World War II is a mouthful. No. World War II comes around and American soldiers travel over to Europe. Yeah. And they start seeing these, um, like, European soldiers, these German soldiers using these really nifty little devices. And they ask, say, hey, what is that? And they're like, oh, it's a Schweizer office messer. <laughs> <laughs> Duh. Oh, it's a Schweizer Duh. office method. <laughs> Don't you know? And the Americans are like, a what? We can't pronounce that. <laughs> so we're just call it, gonna call it Swiss Army Knife. <laughs> yeah. And that's how I got the name, yeah. the Swiss Army Knife. Yeah. And of course, often now copied too, Craftsman's multi tools are of course based oh, off absolutely. of the Swiss Army Knife's innovations. I, and not just I mean, it's not just Craftsman's Leatherman, blah, blah, blah. The only thing that they do differently is that they tend to um, add uh, pliers. You open it up and have the pliers. Right. Swiss Army Army Knife doesn't have that, again, because they've retained their classic design. But that does not mean that they have not adapted. Yeah. Because if a Swiss Army Knife is good for anything, it's for adapting to different environments and different situations, right? I think the current iterations have USB drives on them now. Don't steal my... Thunder, Brian. <laughs> sorry, 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 wait, wait, sorry. They have what on them? They have USB drives, so you can flip out a little oh, thumb drive. Geez. Well, say it again so that way I don't. Steal no, your no, thunder. that's fine. I'm just going with it. Okay, all it was, right. It was a bit. Was going right. with it. Um, they also have laser pointers on them. Some of them actually have Bluetooth technology. Some of them actually flat out have a thumbprint scanner. I'm not even kidding. A biometric. One? Yes. <laughs> Yes, I don't know why. Does the knife like <laughs> it, it only out. registers to you? I guess so. Oh, no. Press the function you want. Corkscrew. Please authenticate with thumbprint. Right. Does but, it have Siri? But, but in, like in Romance, I don't know what that sounds like. But, Swiss Army knife. Where is the closest Wiener Schnitzel in the area? <laughs> Ow! <laughs> yeah. like, Wrong psh- function. It's like pointing in the direction. Psh- ah! Um, I don't understand. <laughs> But what's really interesting is so, you know, even though they've been able to adapt, you know, obviously to, you know, current markets, there was one company that wasn't able to adapt. So there was also this company called Wanger that actually was directly directly making these similar knives alongside um, Elsner's company. Hmm. And what ended up happening was that post 9-11, you know, the need for these pocket knives and everything dwindled because you couldn't really take them on a plane and it's just mm. so the there actually was a huge hit in the market and wanger couldn't keep up so um elsner's company actually bought it out in 2005 and so um they're actually part of the same company now and um actually elsner didn't like his family had did not have to lay off anybody Oh, that's, that's Which was great. Reason. They did not take it. They took a hit, but it wasn't like so detrimental to them because they've been able to adapt their knives to a changing market and changing needs, like creating the the executive line, which has the 
USB thing and the laser pointer and and a freaking one that has like a there's one that's like a, a no joke there's it was the only one ever created a two pound Swiss Army knife that had all these many many different devices all over it including a ballpoint pen. <laughs> No joke. All right. No I joke. There was one that was actually created for that. It had um a hundred there was one that had like a hundred and forty one functions or something like that. When I need to write a note in a hurry, yeah. There's nothing like using a two pound pen to do it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um there's you know, also there was one that they made that had an MP3 player built into it. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. And then they also have uh, chocolate candy bars that they wrap up to look like Swiss Army knives. Oh. Mm-hmm. Don't confuse those. Do not confuse those. Hmm. I'm surprised that a company that produced knives by the name of Wanger sold so well. It's crazy. Yes, it is. <laughs> Thank you, Eric, for... It's late. Bringing yep. us so and close to the I've got cold gutter. medicine in my system. Yep. I'm just saying. Point being, though, Swiss Army knives are pretty freaking rad. And, you know, yes. they've had pretty much the same logo since the get-go, that little, like, cross, yeah. whatever thing. And I think also probably part of the reason why... Um, Victor Knox was able to stay in business for so long is because they also like do luggage and other things like that and haven't had any, didn't take any hits in the luggage realm. Well, good for so, them. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I guess it's left to me. Huh. <laughs> How did that Lamaze work out for you? But not back up. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Well, this is oddly coincidental. Since you just talked about the ballpoint pen, we it would only be fitting if we could talk about the number two pencil. Oh, Brian's favorite topic. Yeah, isn't that <laughs> what started all of this? Yeah. Yes, it is indeed. So it's better for us to finish it too. So first of all, we can't talk about the number two pencil without briefly talking about just what a pencil, the pencil itself. I think it's fascinating, the, the, the word... Uh, comes from the old French pincel, uh, which meant small paintbrush, and also from the Latin uh, pinicillus, which is a little tail. It also has another connotation to it, and you were all thinking of it in your head. No, it's just when and... you said it, I, like before I heard small paintbrush, I literally <laughs> thought you were about to say small penis, that's all. But funny you bring it up, because penicillus... Um, Penicillin? Penicillin. Uh, sorry, penicillus or penicillus, uh, it does have the same root as the Latin word for penis. So, all right. Well, you actually weren't too far off, Sarah. I guess it's all. You know, I, I love how about phallic shaped, phallic related. About 70% through this episode, we all reverted into 12 year olds. <laughs> it's getting late. I'm tired. Yes, that is true. So, um, uh, pencils actually have been around since the ancient world. If you consider you know, the stylus and cuneiform uh, as a writing implement, I, I would consider it that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that being said, we've always had that kind of form in mind, right? For using a stick for writing. Uh, but it's not really until you get to... Um, I mean, you had lead and chalk that was done in, in the Roman times, but you it's not really until you get well past... Oh. No, wait, no, it's just Java. It's not until you get well into the... 16th century that you start to see the pencils that we have today and that has largely to do with the discovery of graphite that uh, that was uh, discovered well a large deposit of it was discovered in cumbria in england it was mistaken for lead at first because of its properties Mm -hmm. but it's not in fact graphite is a crystalline form of carbon yeah um for those who don't know 
Um, and, you know, through various iterations, it got made into, sometimes it was just the stick itself of graphite. Eventually, uh, around the 16th or century, it they put wood holders around it. And it was specifically the Italian couple Simonio and uh, Lindiana Bonacotti who made the carpentry pencil, which was essentially the wood-covered pencil. And uh, it a was brilliant meant to be design. More... I mean, it, it really yeah. made um, made it a much more usable tool, a lot, a lot less messy, and made perfect sense. Absolutely, yeah. And then uh, as you evolve and get into the late 18th centuries, that's when they start to experiment with the makeup of the uh, the graphite. They found if they also sometimes they found if they mixed it with clay, they were mixing graphite with sulfur and other elements to just try to find the right make for it. When you get to America is when you start to see some things shift. Um, first of all, Benjamin Franklin sold pencils, or advertised pencils for sale, I should say, in his uh, Gazette. Uh, and George Washington used pencil when he was surveying the Ohio Territory before. By the way, Washington was a great map surveyor, aside from being a military man. Well, fun fact, you know, about George Washington that his wooden teeth also had graphite uh, built into them. And when he was signing documents into law... He was just biting it. He just bite, bite them. Yeah, yeah except yeah. for the fact that he never actually had wood teeth. He had ivory teeth, but... Uh... Your logic aside, yeah, it was funny. <laughs> I liked it. Thank you. Um, actually, we, all, we have to thank Henry David Thoreau, the transcendentalist poet, for making the mix of pencil that uh, led, or I should say graphite, that led us to what we have today. Um, so he's responsible for what's still in my finger from when I was in sixth grade? Not quite. You need a scalpel. So do you guys know what makes a number two pencil a number two pencil? Because we're going to fast forward to the current era now. Um, is it something about the mixture of graphite? It is. Yeah. So um, the composite of graphite, the amount of graphite in the composite is what determines its hardness. And number two hardness is what is commonly used for... <laughs> Sarah? <laughs> the firmness of the number two. <laughs> yeah, the softness, actually, of the number two. Because as you go up in number, the harder the pencil gets. Folks, sorry, there's no saving this segment. Nope. It's, nope. it's firmly in the gutter. Um, but, quite, <laughs> but, but quite seriously... So um, the reason, like, why you need to take a number two pencil for the SAT, it's not like the lead would not work with the Scantron machine or anything like that. No. But if you made a mistake, anything that was not number two lead um, would be much harder to erase, yeah. essentially. Um, so that's why. And so as the harder the composite gets, uh, you notice that, for example, uh, a much harder pencil is used in on vellum because you need to because number two lead doesn't really work on vellum. Vellum is used in elevations in scene design. It's also used in architecture. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's the harder you get, you also get thinner line weights with it. That's to say that's the thickness of the line itself that you're creating when you use the pencil. So that's part of it. Um, other things that come into mind. Uh, do you guys know what the kind of wood is in a pencil? Birch. No. Cedar, actually. Oh. And it was done that way because it was it, of actually because of the pleasant smell. Of it, hmm. uh, incidentally enough, and though the cedar has changed it, uh, over the years, but that's why it was picked. 
And do you know where the myth comes from as far as the getting lead poisoning from a pencil? Probably because it's still called pencil lead for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah. So that's what you would think, right? But because, but that's actually a misnomer. No. Um, yes, when graphite was originally discovered, it was mistaken for lead because it looked like lead. And there were lead pencils used, again, in the ancient world. But we haven't used lead for writing in centuries. It's the paint that was used for the pencils had mm. elements, had some parts of lead in it. One no point. kidding. That's why it was, yeah, it had nothing to do huh. with it, with the composite. It you just saved this segment. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, I do also want to point out that there is a man, his name is David Reeves, and he is an artisanal pencil sharpener. Oh my God. He's damn good at what he does, or so he claims. Um, he is wrote he a Alan's book. cousin? He, he, <laughs> he wrote a book on how to sharpen pencils. He's kind of a humorist as well. Uh, very, like, absurd, but very funny guy. He also uh, is the host of a show on, uh, I think it's on the Discovery. Oh, no, it's on the National Geographic Channel. Um, and it's called Going Deep, where he talks about learning how to... So, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Unsaved. Leave it. Leave it. Just let it go. Say it over but, again. <laughs> so I think the joke is that Rees makes them really mundane complex. Such as, again, he's an artisanal pencil sharpener. In fact, if you go to artisanalpencilsharpening.com, you can find his website. Um, but, like, on going deep, like, you learn things like, what's the proper etiquette for shaking hands in different situations? How do you open doors the right way? He went, like, I watched him talk for 30 minutes about how to open certain kinds of doors. <laughs> so this guy wow. really takes his work very seriously. Clearly. Yeah. Um, There's his website. I'm on it right now. Look at him. He's artisanally sharpening pencils right there yeah nice. there you see yeah it uses like i believe he uses an exacto knife actually for his sharpening oh, ah. and he does it while he eats at the uh, space needle and in between bouts of knitting uh and uh of course you know we we owe the space needle to nails yes he fashions nails in his spare time too oh and he likes swiss army <coughs> i mean who doesn't yeah of course i think we just brought it full circle ladies and gentlemen we sure did can i just say that there are actually number one pencils. There are number. There is number one, and there are, are number two and a half pencils. Yes, and number three pencils. See, I was always a mechanical pencil kind of person, so I always just like got my point yeah. five. You're one of them. That was a 20th century innovation. Oh, I also forgot to mention they now have uh, bendable pencils now too. Like they use a non wood covering that hmm. can still be sharpened, but it like bends. What, how would you write with that? I don't. No, it's, I mean, it's malleable, so you can straighten it when you want to write it, and then you can curve it when you don't want to. <laughs> Weird. Okay. <laughs> let's get into feedback. Yeah, let's do that. This week in Listener Feedback. Two pieces of feedback. Uh, why don't you read the first one, Sarah? So this one's from Michael, um, from the land of great vegetarian food and the Ark of the Covenant. New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it says, hey, nerds. First of all, I love the podcast. I only listen to a few podcasters, but you are you all are by far one of my favorites. Um, Thank you. And he already says, he says it in the next paragraph, but you didn't have to say it because I could tell because he spells favorites with a U. Mm -hmm. um, he's an expat Brit who is in university in London at the moment. Spells color with a U, too. Yeah. Um, he says, but I've lived over... <laughs> <laughs> but I've lived overseas my whole life and I get very excited whenever something about the countries I've lived in comes up in your podcast. Um, I actually started listening to your podcast in the country, which I hope you guessed from the subject line, Ethiopia. 
Um, I reckon you can get away with still adding that to the map. I hope I can. Um, now, because of my ties to Ethiopia, I'd like to address something that came up in your Kwanzaa episode. Kwanzaa or something similar doesn't really come up as a uh, as the country is predominantly made up of Orthodox Christians and Muslims. Um, somehow in the Bantu migrations centuries ago, something really divided the Ethiopians and the nearby Kenyans, giving them completely different languages and cultures. Of course, I bring up Kenya as it's Swahili that the word from Kwanzaa comes from. Um, I'd like to make a suggestion to you, very subtly coming from this topic. I feel that an episode on the Bantu peoples and the history of Bantu languages yes. and their migration down the coast of Africa would be very, very interesting. It's a topic that I personally find very interesting, given the amazing history of places like Zanzibar or Uganda and the rich and beautiful cultures they have. Totally. One Absolutely. I love it. <clears throat> One of the things I study in my degree actually is Kiswahili. Mm. Uh, so I will sign off with a bit for you to try your hand at pronouncing. Ooh, we should totally give this to Eric. <laughs> I have it right here. He's I'm already two. looking at do it. Do it, Eric. Do it. He's got his Lysdexia and his Cold. NyQuil working. <laughs> if he does this, this will be nothing short of a miracle. I mean, we'll ha you'll have to write in because it's not like we know anybody. He might have to renounce his agnosticism because he would <laughs> <laughs> Proof of God. <laughs> do it, Eric. Do it. Um, <clears throat> Asante sana na kuikia juya kazi kabwa jau ya podcast. I got that one. Kawa hira. Sure. It was pretty good, actually. Yeah. I, I have no idea, but it sounded pretty good. I, it, I think I actually pronounced most of the sounds that are visible. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you you definitely said sounds in roughly the same order. So that was good. I'm, I'm actually quite pleased with that. Yeah, that yeah. was that was good. Well, oh, hey, you know what Michael can do right back in and let you know how you did even better. He can call us. Oh, yeah. And actually leave the message in proper right. Swahili. And then I will understand just how terrible I am. No, yeah. it will be a very expensive call though, because he would be calling across to another country to do so. Yeah. Wait, even with our, even with our. Uh, yeah, it's a four hundred eight number. It's a legit phone number. Yeah. So wait, wait, wait. But don't we have uh, Skype? Can he leave a message on Skype? Well, he's the number is for Skype. So oh. if he's, it's the way to access the Skype account. Oh, record yourself as a simple MP three file and then email, email it to, it us, to us. And that's then it cheaper. costs nothing. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so that's one way to get a hold of us if you guys want to do so. Um, you can go to nerdonomy.com, click that talk to us button, and it will send directly to our emails. Um, you can also find all of our email addresses individually. On the nerds page. On yep. the nerds page, which actually, before I forget, I actually got personal feedback directly to me. Um, from, uh, Stephanie St. Germain, we've gotten something mm -hmm. from her before. Yeah. Um, she actually sent me an article that, uh, basically said that there was a, it's a satire article, but it was really funny. The title of it was 27 year long study, um, from NASA concludes that women named Sarah fart more than anybody else. <laughs> well, we know from this podcast and Nerds it's false. Film, it's utterly film, false. It's true that instead, uh, women named Sarah belch more yes. than anyone else. That's, yeah. uh, that's that's very true. Like I always say, why fart and waste it when you can burp and taste it? Yep. We uh, mouth we, farts are uh, just as special. <laughs> we we have uh, irrefutable evidence that's been given several times on our episode. Sean, can you at some point do a a Sarah burps compilation? 
Oh, a belt reel? You want to yeah, do a belt, belt reel? Yes, a belt reel of just Sarah. Well, the would be funny fantastic. thing is, is I think there was a belt reel really? on like an old hard drive, like way back when. So then, when spoilers or not spoilers, I guess they're exposing, exposing, pulling, the, pulling back the curtain a bit. Yeah, pulling yeah. back the curtain. Um, when we did that blooper reel on that nerd on me blooper reel like a while back yeah and there was just a like long stream of burping <laughs> that's right that was all just me in one take oh, burping right. because we lost all my burps so i was like oh don't worry i'll send you some and i just sat there and i just kept burping over and over no, again. i want like, sean to go back I can through everything you, we've so. ever recorded and he could probably find the unique spike in the audio for the burp. He could probably even design an algorithm just sure. to isolate well, Sarah's burps. He did at one point tell us that he knows what an um looks like now. That's true. Because he's, he's we say it so, so much. much. I wonder. Yeah. I wonder if uh, I want him to take all my burps like. and then like, you know, make it like Christmas music. No, like in a de Vida or something like oh, that. Oh, that'd be fun. <laughs> burp. That'd okay. be pretty impressive. That would actually be really funny. Okay, so uh, you can get a hold of us by going to nerdonomy.com, clicking the talk to us button. Go to our uh, little bio pages and you can find all of our individual emails if you'd like to do so. You can also find on the desktop version our our phone number if you want to call and leave a voicemail. Otherwise, our PO box number is totally available. Or if you prefer social media, if that's more your thing, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, search Nerdonomy. You will find us. I promise you that. But the most important thing you can do is tell your friends all about the podcast. I did mention before we closed up that we had two pieces of feedback. One is actually for Nerds on Film. I misspoke earlier. We will read that on Nerds on Film next time. That being said, I think Eric also has a very special announcement he would like to make. Well, I don't know how special it is, but... It's special. Uh, for our listeners who are in the San Francisco Bay Area, if you have a need for star parties, uh, an opportunity to go and actually have a look at the uh, the heavens through amateur telescopes and ask some really great questions, some very knowledgeable people, you're welcome to join uh, us at Grant Park, uh, located in San Jose, California. It's up in the foothills. It's a little bit of a windy drive, but it's a lot of fun when you get there. And to find more information about when these star parties are held... Uh, go to hallsvalley.org. That's H-A-L-L-S. Halls, just like the throat lozenge. Valley, I don't need to spell it. Uh, and then .org. And you'll find a list of our schedule. Um, I'm afraid by the time this podcast comes out, the March 12th star party will have already passed. But you're in prime condition to join us for the April 9th star party. Uh, and you might see me there. You might see my father. You'll see a bunch of uh, really nerdy people because, let's face it, amateur astronomy is about as nerdy uh, as amateur anything gets. Uh, but there you have we have star parties once a month all year round. If you're going to be in the area in the future, you can check in, see if it lines up with a future uh, trip to yeah. the Bay. And speaking of trips, I think we've reached our quota for a Nerdonomy meetup. I thinks we have. So I'm thinking late or mid spring, like around May. So folks, let's put, let's put, I know we've been asked for those who are interested, those who are interested, you have put your name out there, email us uh, or through the feedback page and tell us what time in that spring period would work best for you. We'll find a happy medium and get a date to you on the books. And of course, advertise it out for people who also want to drop in and hang out with us. And also here, Eric, give a wonderful off the cuff tour of some Desiccated remains. Yeah. Among, you know, other Nails. Pottery. Yeah. And pottery. And ancient surgical tools. Sweet. They're there too. There you go. So, nerds, it is that time. Until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune into our next exciting episode. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. 
Tradonomy.com. Bye. So that was a weird episode. Yeah. <laughs> and painful. Yeah. I enjoyed it, though. Okay. Well, I mean, this sucks because now we're just completely out of Band-Aids and Neosporin, I think. So I'm pretty sure my antibiotics are not going to cover half of these infections. <sighs> yeah. What are you guys worrying about? It's, everything's going to be fine. Brian, is that the is that the bloodlust talking? Maybe. <laughs> so you're passed out then. Let's paint things on his face. Ooh, sweet. <laughs> <laughs>